Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. It's November 28th, 2018. I'm Tamara Lucas and I'm here today with my guests to discuss the Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change 2018. The Lancet Countdown publication and organisation are led by Dr Nick Watts, but today I am joined by co-authors Professors Hilary Graham and Hugh Montgomery. Welcome. Hilary, might you introduce yourself please? Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here too. My name's Hilary Graham and I work at the University of York. I'm a public health researcher and for many people public health conjures up images of sewage, sewerage, sanitation, exhaustions to be more healthy in your lifestyle and public health research and practice does indeed do all those things. But it has a much wider and deeper ethical base which is about assuring the conditions in which people can lead healthy lives. And climate change is a major threat to those conditions, and that's what's brought me into the Lancet Countdown. Thank you, Hilary. Hugh? Yeah, so I'm Hugh Montgomery. I'm Professor of Intensive Care Medicine at UCL, where I direct the Centre for Human Health and Performance. And so I suppose my clinical work and research tends to be of the spangly end of, of critically ill people and molecular biology. So it's a little odd that I should end up in uh, hardcore climate science and public health. But I really got drawn into this in the late 1990s when the newspapers were saying there's no such thing as climate change and if anything it's getting colder. But the papers I was encountering by accident in nature and science and so forth all looked to me very worrying. So I thought I'd spend a year or two doing my own work on it to have a look, see if I could formulate an opinion. Did, realised it was terrifying and a major threat and started work on it from there. So I guess I've been in the space for about 20 odd years since. So to explain what the Lancet Countdown is for those listeners who haven't come across it, the Lancet Countdown came out of two commissions that were published in 2009 and 2015 and has become a tracking monitoring system that tracks health dimensions of the impacts of and the response to climate change using 41 indicators across five domains, which we will define and comment on throughout this podcast. The Lancet Countdown is a product of a collaboration between 27 leading academic institutions, United Nations and intergovernmental agencies. It has representatives from every continent and draws on world-class expertise from climate scientists, ecologists, mathematicians, geographers, engineers, energy, food, livestock, transport experts, economists, social and political scientists, public health professionals and doctors. So, as you can tell, it's a very large, multidisciplinary, intersectorial project. It reports annually, and today we're going to discuss some of the key points arising in Lancet Countdown 2018 and some of the issues in climate change and health. Hilary... Could you briefly define the five main domains that we're tracking progress on, please? The first one, which you would expect in a journal like The Lancet, is looking at the health impacts of climate change. So it has indicators that are tracking health impacts in relation to heat waves, floods, droughts, climate-sensitive diseases like lung cancer and dengue fever, and food insecurity. The second domain and the third domain are then beginning to drill down into the responses to the health impacts of climate change. The second domain is looking at adaptation and planning to protect people's health from the effects of climate change. So it's asking about what societies are doing, what's being done at the national level, what are cities doing. The third area is looking at mitigation. Mitigation refers to what societies can do to prevent climate change. And in this domain, the, f the focus is on reducing fossil fuels, which are driving up carbon dioxide and other emissions, which are in turn 
responsible for climate change. So it's monitoring what is happening to the coal intensity of the energy system, i.e. how much carbon dioxide is being emitted for each unit of energy. It's looking at access to clean energy and what's happening to air pollution and to premature deaths from air pollution. The fourth domain is asking about the economics of climate change. So it has indicators related to the economic costs of climate change, so the economic costs of extreme weather events, as well as the economic enablers that can accelerate the transition to a low carbon economy. So it has indicators on renewable energy, on what's happening to investment in coal, what's happening to fuel subsidies and carbon pricing. And then the final domain is looking at engagement by public and the political sector in health and climate change. And it has global indicators relating to the media, science, government and the corporate sector. Thank you, Hilary. I wonder whether it might be possible for each of you to tell me something about your particular interests within these indicators. Hugh. Yes, I suppose my interests are are relatively broad because I'm not, unlike Hillary, an expert in public health per se. I suppose my major focus has been on mitigation. Whilst I appreciate that we are locked into climate change, we've had substantial energy gain to our Earth's atmosphere, which currently amounts to around five Hiroshima bombs of energy a second being gained by our atmosphere, and that's driving increased extreme weather events and so forth. Whilst I understand that we do have to put in place adaptation to that, to learn to live with some of these consequences, I've always felt that the drive has to be to mitigate. We have to stop making things worse. So I suppose of all of those things, the focus for me particularly is what are we doing to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions? Are we being effective in doing that? And as every year goes past, I guess increasingly alarmed at the fact that we're really not doing very much. How would you break that down in terms of personal responsibility and policy and government-led initiatives? Well, it's very interesting because we're locked into a sort of tessellation of elements which seem to prevent anyone taking any action. So at the top end, you've got governments who say, well, look, Industry isn't pressing for this. The general public isn't pressing for it. If we raise this and say anything other than we're going to grow an economy and fund the health service better, people won't vote for us. So we won't mention anything about it. Then you've got businesses saying, well, we can't do anything because the public won't demand it. And governments aren't legislating to give an even playing field. So we're disempowered. And then you've got the general public saying, well, if the government won't change things and businesses won't give us the opportunity to act differently, we can't do anything either. So I think it has to be that we have action from the top down and bottom up. And I'm increasingly minded of the fact that there are two elements probably that are most important. Firstly, personal action, by which I mean personal in our personal lives, professional personal lives, political personal lives, to create the permissive environment in which politicians can act by spending our money differently with businesses and so forth. And then businesses too, making those changes autonomously, which some are, and public getting behind them. I think if those two things happen, the body politic might follow. But I am not at all optimistic that we can leave this to, for instance, the annual negotiations or the follow-on from the Paris deal, and that's going to come up with a solution, because I don't think it has done that. I think all the evidence is that it's not made any significant difference. Greenhouse gas emissions have risen, as our report shows, 1.8% last year, 2% the year before. We're not reducing our emissions. And I don't see any real evidence that we're going to get traction on this until it's too late. Hilary. I'd like to pick up on one of those tiers that Hugh mentioned, which is about the public. In our 
report, we look in some depth at political engagement, but also media engagement. And what's clear is that although health and climate change coverage has increased, health represents a very small proportion of the total coverage of climate change. Namely, there are debates going on about climate change in the media and in other sectors as well, but health is not centre stage to those discussions. And the minute you put health in, you put people back into the picture. So I think health is an incredibly important gateway into opening up a much richer public discussion about climate change. And the way I feel we need to rethink some of our messaging around climate change is to step back from representing climate change threats in terms of calendar years, what the world will look like if we don't do anything by 2030, by 2050, by 2100. And we think about how people think about time, which for most of us isn't in calendar time, it's in personal time, it's in biographical time, and it's particularly, I think, in intergenerational time. So we think about where our children and grandchildren might be at certain stages in their lives. And certainly one of the messages that I think we're picking up from the Lancet Countdown is that information about climate change is not touching people's values in everyday lives. So, for example, if rather than say, without urgent action now, climate change is on course to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures in 2030, which is a message from a recent report, we could say in 12 years' time. Or we could say, by the time a child born today reaches adolescence, we could talk about the fact that we are currently on a trajectory to be four degrees above pre-industrial level, an uninhabitable planet by 2100. That feels a long way away, but it's within the lifetime of a child born today in many, many countries. So I feel we need to reframe how we think about climate change and we need to make it much more personal and we need to use the the temporal framings that ordinary people use. I completely agree with Hilary on this. I think in terms of my children's lifetimes, and I think many of us who are parents do just that. My children are 12 and 16 years old, and my fear is not about an existential threat in some many decades of years' time, but a real and genuine threat to the survival and well-being of my own children in their late middle age. That's a motivator for me. So just to return to this year's report, Hugh, might it be possible for you to focus on some of the key findings that this year's indicators have shown? We, of course, have to be fairly selective in the indicators we can report, and we have to be scientifically based to report things for which there are data. What I could tell you won't in any way represent the totality of impacts on health. One of our first issues has been heatwave exposure. And we're talking as as heat waves here as being more than three days with a minimum temperature in the top 1% of temperatures between 1986 and 2008 average. So we're talking about really very hot, top 1% for three days. And that's important because if you don't allow cities or towns or countryside to cool down at night time, the thermal stresses on humans are savage. Prior to the last Lancet countdown report, oddly, People talked about global mean average surface temperature changes across the globe. That's not the same as a heat wave. And furthermore, we aren't distributed across the globe evenly. Uh, Humans don't live at the North Pole generally, not in any numbers anyway, and we're not evenly distributed across the oceans. So in the first report, we mapped where the heat waves would be. And of course, on land, they're much greater than they are at sea. 
And because of where people live, they're often very much hotter or greater heat waves where those people actually live. The second thing we did was look at the number of people who were particularly vulnerable. And whilst babies and infants are particularly vulnerable, we looked at those over the age of 65 years of age who are especially vulnerable. And of course, we've got larger numbers of those living in just these places where heat waves are most extreme. So we've upgraded the data for this year, and we find that there are another 157 million more people who were exposed to heat waves in 2017 compared to only 17 years before. That's 18 million more exposures than even the year before. These are really very dramatic and substantial impacts. And again, I pick up on Hillary's point. This is in the lifetime of a child born in 2000 up to being a teenager. 157 million more exposed to heatwave events. I have to say, I still therefore find it baffling that the media perception doesn't make that link with health more explicit. Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, of course, in, in other countries, they often will. We're relatively protected in uh, some Western worlds because we get to the seaside or take a holiday or switch air conditioning on and we're able to escape it because we're working in temperatures that might be in the low 30s. But in some areas of the world, um, in Kuwait, for instance, those heat waves become so dramatically intense that not only are people confined to air-conditioned buildings completely, but they've got serious problems with road traffic accidents this year with tyres bursting and cars going out of control because the rubber just isn't able to cope with the temperatures. And it's also the case if you're poor and you're living in a, a very poor environment, that this has impacts, for instance, on whether you can work. So if you are in a temperature approaching or above core temperature, 37 degrees Celsius, then you're gaining heat from the atmosphere. And the only way you can lose it is by sweating. And to be able to do that, you've got to be able to drink very large amounts of water. And what you can't do is add a lot of energy from inside you to that heat by exercising. So we've also done the modelling and calculations, and we find that 153 billion, that's 153 billion hours of labour was lost to heat in 2017. That's up by 62 billion hours since the year 2000, again, in the life of a child who's now a teenager. And that's 3.2 billion working weeks lost. That matters not just to construction, where manual labour is important, but generating food. So we have impacts too on crop production, and that interacts with data we have um, about agricultural yields. So in fact, we've seen declines, we report this again, in agricultural yields in every single region studied. And 30 countries have dramatic downward trends in yields, which are reversing decades-long trends in improvements. So all the gains we've had to agricultural productivity are now going into reverse in very substantial areas of the world. And if you then add issues such as flooding, we're looking at, and, and drought events, we're looking at, again, very dramatically increased impacts. 1.4 billion predicted more drought exposure events in the lifetime of a child born today, and 2 billion flood exposure events per year, again, in that sort of lifetime. So these are all going to interact on food production and, of course, that will lead to starvation, it will lead to mass migration and ultimately conflict. Those are not issues that we're able to model or predict very accurately. The extreme weather issue, I suppose, is worth commenting on. There's no one alive, pretty much anywhere in the world, that wouldn't have experienced or noted the dramatic increase in extreme weather events we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years. 2017 saw over 700 extreme weather events worldwide, 
and, as we report, with economic losses of a third of a trillion dollars, tripled the previous year. And this is affecting everybody. We saw this in Europe. It's been reported in the eastern Mediterranean, especially at risk. Uh, but it's been seen worldwide in Southeast Asia and so forth as well. And let's remember this isn't unique now. Uh, 2010 saw the then worst heat wave of Central Europe and Northern Europe, and it saw a fifth of the entire land surface area of Pakistan underwater. So we're getting used to these sorts of extreme, extreme events being the new norm. They're not going to be survival for human civilization in the longer term. Other final headlines, I suppose, are that uh, infectious diseases change. Obviously, in warmer environments, uh, bugs like salmonella will grow faster and cause diarrhea. And you'd say, well, look, you can go overcome that with a fridge. But there are lots of vector-borne diseases, those carried, for instance, by mosquitoes, which really do impact on health and well-being. And the ones we particularly looked at is dengue fever being transmitted by a couple of different sorts of IDs mosquitoes. And we're again seeing very dramatic increases in what's known as vectoral capacity which is really the capacity for transmission of dengue. And that's because when you add a lot of energy to an atmosphere, you get a lot more weather. That means a lot more rainfall. When it gets warmer, the areas that mosquitoes can live in also expands along with the water. The mosquitoes breed faster. They feed more. The parasites that live in them replicate faster. And it means you get a much greater load when you get bitten. So we've seen vectoral capacity increase by essentially between 9 and 11% in the last 40 or 50 years, again, since I was a child. And we're seeing no fall in that at all. We're seeing sea temperatures rising, allowing bugs that cause diarrhea to increase. We've been looking at one called Vibrio, which is one of the classes that causes cholera. We're not looking specifically at cholera. We're talking at other slightly less severe forms of diarrhoea. Just in the Baltics, there's been a 24% increase in the coastline suitable for that sort of infection. And the number of days per suitable for infection every year has almost doubled. We're seeing this as well in the northeast parts of the United States. So this is not a problem specifically for just poor distant nations, which we in the rich Western world can ignore. This is affecting everybody worldwide. It's worth pointing out, of course, that we can only report published validated data that has to be analysed. So the data we're reporting relate to 2017. We're working 10 months or so behind time. Hilary, can I ask, is there any good news in this year's countdown? There is good news. There's good news on policies and there's good news on public engagement. In relation to policies or investments, in the section of our report that's looking at the economics of climate change. We note that investment in new coal capacity uh, fell substantially in 2017, and burning coal is the most carbon dioxide intensive way of generating electricity. So that's the fuel source that we're most concerned about. And it reached its lowest level for the last 10 years. And that downward trend uh, in 2017 has been largely driven by China and India. And at the same time, employment in renewable energy increased by over 10 million in 2017. Divestment in fossil fuel industries, that means taking investments out, selling investments like stocks and bonds and investment funds in those industries, is continuing including by health institutions and medical associations. There is a good news story about the slow transition towards a lower carbon economy. And in relation to the public sphere, there are leaders in both the media and in the political sector, which I feel we need to pay very close attention to. Media coverage of health and climate change increased, and it increased particularly 
and they were the drivers of this increase, particularly in South Asian countries, India in particular, and English-speaking newspapers within that um, country. And in relation to an indicator of government engagement, we looked at UN General Assembly, where every country has the opportunity to present on issues of concern to them. And in that arena, we see increasing engagement in health and climate change. And there it is being led particularly by what are called small and independent developing states, the countries in which the health impacts of climate change that he was discussing are disproportionately impacting. So I think we've got to pay very close attention to those who are driving public consciousness and political consciousness about health and climate change. And as I say, I would single out from our analyses, South Asia in relation to the media and the most threatened states in relation to government engagement at UN level. Yes, I I pick up on that. Those are the green shoots. I'm, of course, always known to be slightly the pessimist in these things, too. I agree with Hillary. We have to nurture these green shoots because whilst if you look at this impact, for instance, on renewable energy, we've report 157 gigawatts of renewable energy installed in 2017 or generation capacity versus only 70 gigawatts for fossil fuel capacity. So you say, well, look, this is all good, isn't it? Almost twice as much energy generating capacity going for renewables and fossil fuel. But of course, the other side of looking at that is to say we are still adding fossil fuel generating capacity. We haven't stopped. We're still going up and our emissions are still going up. So we have to nurture this recognition that this is a health crisis that we're facing. We have to nurture the messaging and we have to say we can't just keep adding more energy generating capacity from both sides of the fence. We've got to get rid of the fossil fuel generating capacity completely. And we haven't got very long to do it in. Hilary, in terms of priorities moving forward, what specific area would you say needs renewed effort in the next few years? Well, I would single out public engagement. I think the public need to know what's going on, but they need to have that explained in terms that they understand, that connects with their core values, the values that they share with many other people, values around family, values around respect for the land, if they're religious, that we own the planet temporally on behalf of a greater God. There are a range of values that we can connect with, but I feel we need a major repackaging of climate change and health around those core values. Thank you. Hugh? I think we need to engender anger because we can rephrase this in a very different way. There are these, what we in the trade call co-benefits. If you act on climate change, it just so happens you get enormous health benefits, quite independent of the impact on climate change. So as a, for instance, if you cycle and walk, or are encouraged or enabled to do that, you get dramatic improvements of health across the board, from whether it's obesity and diabetes, or osteoporosis, or falls, or mental health, or particularly cancers. Why is it that we say it's perfectly okay and a right to drive a four by four in a city? And it is not a right for a woman to be able to feel safe cycling to work or to school with children or out with the husband or partner at weekends. Why is that considered not a right? And why is it that that person is exposed therefore to an increased risk, for instance, of breast cancer that might approach 20% by being denied that? That would make me cross. We need to let people understand that they are being denied the right 
to a healthy future by the activities that uh, governments are taking. So before we close, I would like to ask whether each of you could give us a favourite example, perhaps, of how all of us today can make a difference that will have a positive effect on climate change and health impacts. Well, I'd like to start by answering the question indirectly, if I can. Of course. Which is that I feel we have a lot to learn from other public health success stories. And the example I would give would be tobacco control, which is the measures that have been taken to reduce people's dependence on cigarettes, which in many ways is analogous to the world dependence on fossil fuels. And in the tobacco control area, which I've worked in for some time, the WHO brought out something called a Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which specified policies operating at the levels that Hugh's already discussed, the macro level, the government level, the economic level, the community level and the individual level. And those recommendations that form that basis are ones that all parties to that framework convention have signed up to, to try and implement. And among those measures is protecting other people from tobacco smoke. Right. And I think there's a direct analogy with that and it picks up very much on what he has already said about transport which So my favourite measure would be to impose the current regulations that exist in many countries around idling of cars, namely sitting with your car engine on when you are neither moving and quite often quite not even in it. And we know that the emissions from idling cars are twice those from cars in motion. We also know that the idling happens in places where there are particularly likely to be children on busy roads, outside schools, etc. So my favourite would be to impose the regulations that are existing, as there are already in China, as there are in the UK and in other countries, and extend those regulations so that they actually have impact and extend those regulations so they apply to more countries. Thank you. Very good example. Hugh? If I just had to choose one, I'd get everyone to move their electricity accounts to a 100% renewable supplier. I'm not a shareholder in any of them. The one I use is good energy. It's 100% renewable. And that does a few things. First, it makes you feel good and it lowers your own carbon footprint. Secondly, though, it moves the money. If everyone were to do this, if every listener to this podcast were to do this and get their family members to do it and their friends and those around them, jumping together will move the markets because the investors will look and think actually investing in fossil fuels for electricity generation is no longer anywhere near as good or best as it was. Renewables are a much better bet and they will hedge. They will move investment funds. And moving the money is what this is going to be about to a very substantial degree. So go online, find yourself a 100% renewable electricity supplier, move now and engage everyone around you to do the same thing for one other reason. And that's the point that Hillary has made. The way that people seem to respond to these issues is not through fact. It's through social normalization. In fact, a very good study from George Mason University a few years ago showed this. You could play people every reason under the sun for reducing their electricity emissions. None of them worked except one. And that was the simple message. You're the only person who's not doing this. If everyone feels it's happening around and they all join in, so move your electricity account, tell everyone around you why you're doing it, 
and let's normalize this and get everyone to move together because that will move the markets and it will also send a signal to the body politic. Also a great example. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you both very much for joining us today. That was really a stimulating conversation. And for people who would like to read The Lancet Countdown on health and climate change, please visit thelancet.com where it is free with registration. Thank you to our guests, Professor Hilary Graham and Professor Hugh Montgomery. Goodbye.